afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zune, and all major podcast providers. You can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com, where you can subscribe to our newsletter to find out about upcoming guests, features, events, and other shows on our network. If you have any questions or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please visit us on Facebook, Twitter, or send us an email to questions at theorganicview.com. Today, I have the legendary Tammy Hartung, and we're going to be talking about her book, Homegrown Herbs. Now, all chefs know that the secret to good food is fresh herbs. Whether you're a chef or even just someone who appreciates the flavor of fresh organic herbs, Having an herb garden is becoming an essential part of every home environment. In addition to culinary uses, herbs are also grown for a myriad of reasons, such as natural remedies, fragrance, beauty, uh, to to be used uh, to dye textiles, for attracting pollinators, and even to repel other insects. Some herbs are even grown for spiritual ceremonies and rituals. While there are many uses for herbs, Growing your own herbs is something that everyone should incorporate into their home environment. It's economic, it's good for the environment, and also good for your health. So I would like to welcome to the show, Tammy Hartung. Good Good afternoon, afternoon. Tammy. (laughs) Hi there. (laughs) So great having you. I mean, this book, let me tell you, Homegrown Herbs, a complete guide to growing, using, and enjoying more than 100 herbs. My goodness, how long did it take you to write this? Well, I often say that it took me about six months to write it, but, you know, many, many years of living it so that there was information to put to the pen and paper. And and I wanted something that would be really fun and practical for people to use, wanted a garden or wanted to learn how to use herbs, that sort of thing. Now, it's very interesting, the, some of the questions that we've been getting in from the audience Um, people are simply thrilled at the fact that, you know, we can have a kitchen herb garden, and it almost seems uh, obvious that they should have had one already. I mean, kitchen herb gardening uh, was something that was very common until, I think, the 50s, and then it kind of uh, uh, just petered out. But um, thanks to the whole organic movement, more and more people have been planting herb gardens and kitchen herb gardens, and it's something that anybody can really do as long as you have uh, some sunlight in a windowsill and you have the desire to do it. That's so true. And, and for people who are patio gardeners or apartment dwellers, um, you know, they can garden on their patios and decks. You can garden in your kitchen or in another part of your house. I often remind people that herbs don't have to live in a pot in the kitchen they can live in the bathroom or your bedroom all through the house to make it beautiful and fragrant and then of course if you are fortunate enough to have a piece of land of any size really you can plant a small garden or large herb garden you can mix your herbs into your perennial or your annual or your food gardens as well so they really are diverse and there's not any there really is no end into what you can do. So whether you like basil for pesto, which is something that most of us um, would just like to devour, and you can't really afford to buy that much basil in the grocery market, 
being able to grow it yourself, pick it fresh, and within minutes make your pesto. I mean, that's just awesome, isn't it? I have a friend who uses, instead of the pine nuts, she uses walnuts. That's what I do as well, because pine nuts are really hard to shell. (laughs) Yeah, well, if you get them shelled, they're pretty expensive, too. That that is also true, but you know people do use different kinds of nuts. I have a friend that uses pecans in her pesto, and it's hmm. quite delicious. So I think the trick is to feel comfortable experimenting, you know, with a basic recipe, and then just take it from there and and have some fun. Yeah, when I, when I went to the New York Fancy Food Show a few years ago, there was um, someone there that had a display, and they took Austrian pumpkin seeds, and they made a pesto with that, and I thought that was pretty clever. Um, it's pretty yummy, but, uh, yeah. I mean, it just goes to show that if you have if you have a bountiful amount of anything, you can, you know, go to town with it and just experiment away, and for the most part, I mean, when it's fresh, you really can't go wrong. That's so true, and we get spoiled, too, to using fresh herbs, and Pretty soon you hear people saying, oh, man, you know, I just can't go back to using dried herbs from a little bottle on the counter because I'm so used to having the flavor that comes from the freshly picked um, herbs and spices. So it's it's really a, a great thing to do. Lots well, of fun. The herbs <laughs> they sell in the store, I don't know, I'm a food snob. When I see <laughs> herbs in the store, I think to myself, how old are they? Because uh, it, it almost seems as though they turn into dust the minute that you open the cap, and uh, you know they're not green. They they seem as I don't know. They they just they just look so dead. <laughs> and uh, you know there's nothing like fresh herbs, and especially when um, you are so accustomed to having fresh organic uh, produce at your fingertips uh, at all times. I mean, it's just, it's really, as you said, hard to go back. It is. And, you know, there are it, there is a case to be made for dried or frozen herbs um, because there are times of the year when maybe you don't have access for one reason or another to the fresh herbs. And, and that's fine, but if you can dry them yourself or you can put them in the freezer, which is just the simplest thing in the world to do, then they're readily accessible. And dried herbs, should look vibrant. They should smell really good, and they should taste very, very tasty. So if you do get something from the market and it doesn't have good flavor, it doesn't smell good, it doesn't look like anything but grass clippings, mm, exactly. put it that's, in the that's compost. That's a great analogy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just put it in the compost. <laughs> yeah, put it in somebody else's compost. <laughs> <laughs> I know in my herbs, that's a really good point. I mean, when I, I use a dehydrator to dry out my herbs, um, and my parsley is very, very green. Uh, even my oregano, it's, it's got a nice, rich color. Uh, and it's, it, when I dry my herbs, I tend to leave the leaf intact, and then when I'm about to use it, that's when I crush them. Yes, and that's really perfect. And there are some herbs like cilantro, for example, or chives that just do not dry. They just, they don't, don't even go there, you know. Just stick with fresh for those particular ones. And if you absolutely need to preserve them in some way, they're best put into the freezer. And then once you freeze herbs, of course, you're going to have to 
uh, cook with them because they're going to get mushy when they thaw. But they will have that flavor of a freshly picked herb. So the fresh herbs, when you're preparing them for freezing, uh, is there anything in particular that you do to them? Uh, do you, I mean, do you harvest them at a particular time of day? Do you wash them? What, what do you recommend? It is just the simplest thing in the world. You just are going to harvest your herbs as you would normally if you were going to pick them fresh. So walk out into your garden and with a pair of kitchen snips and snip what you want. Bring them in. You can rinse them off real briefly and drain them out well in a colander and then just put them in a freezer container. I like to freeze my herbs as whole as possible because then I can just break off while it's still frozen however much I want to use at a time and keep the rest frozen. There there are some people that like to puree up their basil, their thyme, mm-hmm. what have you, and freeze them in ice cube trays and then freeze the cubes in a freezer container and just pull out however many cubes they need for a recipe. But I find that if I just you know, freeze them in long stems. Here's a a great idea. Mint freezes superbly. And when you make cookies, if you pull out a four to five inch piece of mint sprig that's been frozen, crumble it up while it's still frozen into your cookie batter or your cookie dough, then bake it. You then have chocolate chip cookies that are flavored with mint or lemon balm um, or anise hyssop, something of that sort. So it's just very easy to freeze herbs and use them that way. They they do need to be cooked because they will get mushy as they thaw. Mm. And do you have any particular preference as far as container uh, or uh, storage method? Well, I am against using plastic, and I am not fond of using metal containers unless it is stainless steel or unchipped enamel for any kind of herbal preparation. So if I'm freezing things, I like to put them into paper sacks, just like paper lunch bags is really good, or a wax paper sack, and then put that into a freezer container of whatever sort you like, and that acts as a barrier between the plants and that plastic. But it protects them from freezer burn. That's a very smart idea. I haven't heard of uh, using paper bags. Um, you would think with uh, <laughs> all the master gardeners that I know and the, all the uh, different people that I know that are involved with uh, different societies that are um, the herb societies, uh, that would be something that I would have <laughs> incorporated already into my own um, routine. Now, a question that we've received from the audience uh, which may seem very uh, obvious to you, is what is the difference between a spice and an herb? Well, and there is a, it does seem like that would be an obvious answer, but in truth it really depends on who you ask. If you ask a botanist, they will tell you that a spice is tropical and an herb grows in a temperate climate. If you ask... Um, a horticulturist, they'll tell you that an herb dies back to the ground during the winter and a spice grows year-round in a warm climate. Um, For an herbalist, we have a a more broad definition. We say an herb is anything at all that you can find a use for that is a plant. And a spice is typically a tropical um, type of an herb. So um, that's that's the definition I would go with. So 
spices are things like cinnamon and cloves and nutmeg, um, pepper and um, black pepper, I should say, coffee, you know, tea, black tea, those sorts of things, whereas an herb would be anything at all that has some kind of a use to mankind. And that can be anything from yarrow, which people often think of as just a perennial flower, but it has wonderful medicinal properties in edible flowers, to the typical well-known things like rosemary and sage. Mm. And when it comes to uh, just herb selection, uh, what what do you recommend uh, depending upon the the zone that the person is located in? I always suggest that people begin growing herbs by choosing the ones they like to cook with and start there because there are so many. You know, it's it's endless. And people say, well, what is your favorite? Which ones do you think are the best? And in truth, what is best for me is going to be different for somebody else because I, for example, am not crazy about basil, but I cannot live without dill and rosemary. So I would definitely grow those two and leave off the basil, whereas somebody else might really have to grow that basil. So think about what you cook with in your daily cooking and start there and pick maybe four to six herbs to begin with and then expand beyond that because it is very enticing to start planting just loads of different kinds of herbs, but the reality is that's a lot of work to take care of, and if you get discouraged, you're not as likely to stick with it. So it's always good to start slower and more moderately and expand as you have energy and time and resources to do that. Thank you. And my next question is, if you are a gardener, an avid gardener, um, how many plants, how many herbs, rather, do you recommend um, planting in a particular section? I mean, is there any rhyme or reason, or should you just plant what you like? Well, as a general guideline, I would say expect to give an herb between 10 and 12 inches diameter space. So you can look at what kind of space you have available, and then you can sort of go from there. Now, there are plants like thyme, which is smaller and can use half that much space. But most herbs will be very happy in 10 to 12 inches of space, and that gives them enough room to really mature into a nice, bushy, you know, healthy plant without being too crowded, but it it keeps the space full so that you are less likely to have a lot of weeds and, and other kinds of things coming up in between the plants mm. that you want to be there. And one of the growing trends is to have a front yard garden. Isn't and that wonderful? If, I, I think it's fantastic. I had um, Irene Virag, who is a well-known um, columnist uh, in the New York area, and now she uh, she writes for a number of different um, garden associations and whatnot. But uh, she was on the show uh, about a year ago, and she spoke about um, how she decided to turn her front yard into a garden, and she incorporated uh, a lot of herbs. And it's interesting how in America we use our front lawns. Uh, you know, it, it, it's like a just a piece of land that, for the most part, we keep it mowed. We keep it. Uh, we try to keep it alive during the summertime, but it doesn't really serve a purpose. And if you don't have a large parcel of property, 
and you want a garden, it makes perfect sense to do this. It does, and I think also as as we're entering a new time in our lives, it's really important to take good care of all the land that we have by, you know, building the soil and so forth and putting it to use with plants that are going to serve some purpose to you. And there is an argument for just beauty. There's certainly That is certainly true. But if you're going to plant trees, why not plant fruit trees or nut trees? If you're going to have flowers, why not have things that are also herbs you could eat or use medicinally? Food plants are just wonderful in your front yard space. They can be just as beautiful as a rose garden, a formal rose garden. And you will bring pollinators in, and you will have less pest problems because the herbs are really good at repelling insect pests. And, you know, you're just going to be working on all these various different levels to maximize your space to be useful as well as beautiful. I think it's a wonderful idea to plant front yard spaces because it also makes you an example to your neighbors of what they could do. And we all live by the example of what we see that seems really smart and and beneficial. And it might also help improve relationships between your neighbors, especially if they need a little bit of basil. No, of course. (laughs) Come over and They're coming to borrow the cup of sugar. They come to borrow, you know, a couple sprigs of your basil or rosemary for their turkey or their mashed potatoes, you know. So it's it's a great idea. And um, I, I just think that it's um, also important because, especially with the pollinators, I mean, people don't seem to understand that with, uh, especially landscaping, uh, your property, um, there are many, if you have a landscaper that that maintains your land, uh, the chemicals that they may be using might be uh, the reason why you don't have any pollinators coming onto your land. And it could also be that your neighbor is using a particular chemical, and that can also keep the pollinators away. And the herbs, I was intrigued when I found out um, that many of the herbs that I grew attracted butterflies. And uh, I had joined the local uh, county butterfly garden and I was just thrilled to know that I had been planting a lot of plants that attract butterflies. Yes, and, and you know, what you're saying about the chemicals is very, very true. But also I think that going back to that example thing, as people see that you are successfully gardening in an organic fashion, they will be inclined to give it a go you know, and to stop using those chemicals so much. And it's worth mentioning to people, you know, I'm really trying to get the bees in here because I want a lot of squash this year. (laughs) And um, when you put pesticides and herbicides on your property, it's affecting the bees. And start to educate people in that fashion. With the butterflies, every herb that's in the umbilifery or the carrot family so that's going to be parsley and dill fennel caraway all of those are wonderful butterfly plants and the caterpillars will come on the foliage and they may defoliate it and don't worry about that because most of the time what we're after with those plants is the seed heads first off but secondly the caterpillars are only there for a couple of weeks and then they cocoon and become beautiful butterflies. And so for a couple of weeks, we can 
live with a little bit of caterpillar, you know, foraging in our garden to be able to have those butterflies which are going to pollinate the flowers and do great work. One bit of advice, though, it's also really beneficial to attract wild birds into your gardens because they eat a lot of insects and they will help you manage any pest problems that you have. But they also like to eat caterpillars. So it's not a good idea to plant your butterfly herbs near the bird bath because mm. then you're just inviting the birds to have feast on your butterfly caterpillars. So, you know, kind of be strategic in your planting. It's like cocktail hour. They can have a drink <laughs> and then uh, go uh, <laughs> feast on the caterpillars. And, oh, uh, dear. <laughs> and then the cat gets out there and, you know, Everything just goes really crazy, but oh, uh, that's a really good point about the bird bath. Uh, it's interesting because the I always had my bird bath actually in the center of the garden because I figured that that would be a resource for the bees and also for the butterflies um, to have water. Well, they do use the bird bath for water, but, but so what I bird. like to do is also you just keep little. You know, if you buy a um, 10-inch, say, glazed pottery saucer from a, at the garden center, and you set that low to the ground somewhere in the garden, you know, tucked in amongst your butterfly plants, um, the bees and the butterflies will drink there. The birds might also, but they will be less inclined to go to those little saucers close to the ground. They're more happy to go to the bird bath. So you can accommodate both that way. Now, another question that many people may not be aware of is the fact that uh, you can use herbs as companion plants. And, you know, it, it's such a beautiful thing because, as you mentioned before, many herbs do ward off insects. Yes, that's true. And as common companion plants that we think about is, is going back to basil, if you plant basil in and amongst your tomatoes and your peppers, your tomato and pepper fruits will actually have a stronger, more delicious flavor. And if you plant calendula flowers around in your garden, you will attract things like aphids and so forth to the calendula flowers. They kind of act as a magnet plant, and then they will leave your other, um, you know, your other vegetables alone. So there's a lot of things you can do that way. Garlic is wonderful planted around anywhere where you have a problem with aphids because aphids just really don't like garlic. Um, so there's a lot of things that you can do in that respect with the with the herb as well as your food plants or your flowers, you know, that you can manage things that way. And then you don't have to worry so much about spraying things, chemicals in your garden because nature's taking care of things in its own way. Yeah, and I found I found that there are certain types of um certain varieties of geraniums that are very beautiful. The flowers are just really beautiful and uh you know, once again, they serve a purpose. They're uh providing beauty, but also the scent is deterring the insects from uh some of my vegetable plants. Mhm. And if you're growing scented geraniums, you can also have the added benefit of cooking with those leaves and flowers, and they're quite wonderful. If you are making a batter bread or shortbread cookie or um, white cake for a birthday party, 
You can lay some leaves of rose-scented geranium or lime-scented geranium in the bottom of the pan after you've greased and um, floured it and bake your cake or your bread, and it will infuse with that fragrance-like taste. And it's just lovely. It's really beautiful. Then you can come back. If you're decorating your cake, you can sprinkle some edible flowers on there, and you've got a gorgeous presentation. Yeah, I, I've seen that. It, it really is quite um, a beautiful presentation. And in addition to doing that, uh, I remember one year we took different herbs and we actually made tea out of them. Yes. That was now just there, fantastic. I remember we used, uh, it was I can't remember the variety, but it was a salvia, and I think it was, it was fruity salvia. That's all I can remember. Oh, so it might have been pineapple no. sage. And, you know, pineapple sage is fantastic for tea. Actually, I, th- I remember we did something with pineapple sage, but I'm pretty sure that this is a salvia. Well, that is a salvia. It's um, salvia elegans. Ah. And it has bright red flowers. Yes, and yes, yes, yes. Yes. And you can use it for any kind of a pineapple flavor that you want. So you could put it into your salads. You could sprinkle it over your sherbet. You know, you could do all sorts of things with it. But if you want to make a really lovely cup of of, of herbal beverage tea, you want to use about a tablespoon of herb if it's fresh herb for a cup of boiling hot water. And if you're using dried herbs, you're going to use a teaspoon for a cup of boiling hot water, and just bring your water to a boil, put your herbs in a tea ball or a tea net, and pour that over. Then cover your cup with anything that you have, a saucer or a pot holder, something to hold the heat in, Mm. and let it steep for about five minutes or so, and then you have a perfect cup of tea. And that's, that's just the best time of the day, quite honestly. You know, there are people who really have to have their cup of coffee in the morning. I really have to have my cup of tea in the morning, and I like to have it on the back porch where I can see the birds. <laughs> to herbs, and I mean, each plant has something new, uh, not something new, but uh, just something to offer from the other one, and it's, I mean, which ones should you grow? It's, I mean, the list is just endless. Um, I know many people get a little overwhelmed because they want to grow this, they want to grow that, and they don't have the space, but uh, it's just always interesting to see what type of herbs people grow, especially if it's for medicinal reasons and why. What are some of your favorite herbs that you grow for medicinal reasons? You know, I have a, a very small list of things that I use myself for medicinal herbs on a regular basis. I like to grow echinacea because echinacea is such a good immune-supportive herb and it has good antimicrobial properties. So I have to have that one for sure. And lemon balm, that's another fantastic medicinal herb that's good for viruses. It's a good sedative nervine herb. It also calms an upset stomach and it's wonderful for children. So that's an important herb in my herbal medicine cabinet. And in addition to that, I like to look at some of the culinary herbs that have really good medicinal properties because if you have limited growing space, it's nice to be able to have more uses for the herbs that you're able to grow. So thyme is fantastic for sore, achy muscles and as an antimicrobial herb, good for 
helping with infections. And rosemary is fantastic as a respiratory tract herb, and people don't realize that, but, you know, you can make your culinary herbs also your healthful herbs, and and that's a nice benefit to them. And, and they're often just as strong or stronger than many of the therapeutic herbs you find in capsules at the grocery market, something you have in your garden already. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I didn't know that about the rosemary. Rosemary is one of my favorite herbs. I love to um, bake with rosemary, uh, whether it's in bread or just on potatoes. Um, mm-hmm. I just love the smell of rosemary. It's just it's one of my favorite scents. Um, with the medicinal herbs, um, if if you have a limited amount of space, um, is it best that you just simply stick to perennials, or should you incorporate a mixture? I think if you have a very limited space, working with perennials is a good idea. Um, if you can also, though, partner up by doing some containers, either on your patio or on your windowsill indoors, then you can start to look at some of the annual medicinal herbs, perhaps, in those containers as a, a way to sort of supplement your perennial herb garden. So calendula is one medicinal herb that is really important if you have any kind of skin conditions going on or if you have children because it's so good for for making even herbal shampoos. So that is an annual. phenomenal. It is, and they're beautiful. They're just cheerful flowers, you know, and it's the flowers that you want to use of that plant, and they will bloom all summer so long as you keep deadheading them, which means to pick off the spent flowers as they finish blooming. It will just keep going. You can be picking your flowers. You can be drying them in a basket so that you have them for winter use to make ointments and salves and lotions and creams with. And, you know, it's a very good, but it is an annual herb. By the same token, I think that having things like fennel, fennel is a common perennial herb. It has a wonderful flavor but it is so good for the digestive tract. And if people are really wanting to optimize their digestive system so that they're getting the most nutrition from their food and they're metabolizing it the best that they can, then fennel can be an ally in that process. And so, you know, you've got to kind of pick and choose what's appropriate for your particular family's needs, and it will change. When my daughter was young, I had a lot more children's medicinal herbs in my garden than I do now as she's grown. Now, speaking of kids, say if you do have uh, little ones at home and you are thinking about uh, incorporating more herbs into your garden and you really want to get the kids involved, what type of herbs would you recommend uh, for someone that's looking to get their kids you know, really into just at least introduce them to gardening? Oh, you know, kids love herbs because they love things that smell interesting to them. And especially if they can taste them. Oh, yeah, exactly. And it's it's a really nice idea, if you can do it, to give them a little corner of the garden or give them a, a pot that they can grow whatever kind of herb <laughs> they want, so long as it's not an herb that has any toxicity to it. But they love things like lemon balm. They love anise hyssop. You know, they're really, really into the edible herbal flowers like the little Viola Johnny Jump Ups 
or the calendula. Lavender is a favorite. It's it's sort of like they just like them all, quite honestly. Um, you can have them plant even some medicinal things that are appropriate for children, like woolly lamb's ears, which is great for skinned knees and something that they can have in the garden that they can just go and pick when they fall down in the sandbox or what have you and put on their knee to make it feel better. And that's all that they have to do is just pick one of the leaves? Yeah, just pick the leaves and hold it on. You know, when my daughter was little, she would just tie it on there with a bandana scarf so that she could go about her playing without (laughs) worrying about it. And it would make it feel so much better. It's very soothing. I will have to remember that. I didn't know that. I love talking to people like you because it's amazing. You think that you know so much, and then you realize you know absolutely nothing when you speak to someone else. Well, that's true for all of us. (laughs) Um, But that's that's a great, that is really a great idea, and I'm definitely going to pass that one on. Um, One of the questions that I have in regards to uh, very, uh, I guess, uh, how can I put this, um, Herbs that have, I guess, a renewed interest uh, because of its culinary properties uh, happens to be stevia. A lot of people are very interested in growing their own stevia so that they can have an alternative to sugar. Um, what do you, what would you recommend to someone who wants to grow their own stevia? Well, stevia is pretty easy to grow if you start with a plant. It is not that easy to get the seeds to germinate. So go to the garden center and find a stevia plant and bring it home. It is an annual. If you put it outside, it will not tolerate cold temperatures or frost to any degree at all. So you do need to protect it just as you would a pepper or tomato. It's got to be protected that way. It can grow indoors. It will grow in bright, indirect light, and it takes moderate watering has these beautiful little white flowers that are are edible and can be used in salads and things. The leaves are the part that people use as an herbal sweetener. And you can buy stevia in the natural food store where they've actually taken all the chlorophyll out of the leaves in order to make it look white like sugar. But that chlorophyll is a good nutrient for our bodies, too. Mm. So my recommendation is to grow this plant and regularly pinch the top growth, you know, the top two or three inches, and use it either fresh or dry it in a basket and then collect it um, accumulatively through the growing season so that you have it all through the winter as well. And you can use it as an alternative in baking. There are cookbooks on cooking or doing baking with stevia, um, but you can also use it to flavor your tea and so forth. It's like a hundred times sweeter than sugar, and it has absolutely no calories. It's perfect for people who have blood sugar um, issues, whether that's low blood sugar or high blood sugar diabetes. It's just a, a really good ally. There's another herb that works similarly that people don't often know about that I like just as well, and it's easy to grow, and it's called... Mayan mint or Aztec sweet herb. Hmm. So any of those three will work nicely. Now, can you can you um, get the seeds and germinate them, or is that also a plant that uh, you have to get from a nursery or garden center? 
You can get the seeds um, for Aztec Sweet Herb or Mayan Mint from a, a place called Horizon Herbs, which is a seed company. And they are a little pricey, but, you know, you only have to buy a packet. And they're, mm. they're pretty easy to germinate. And what does it taste like? I'm going to order them. <laughs> <laughs> well, they taste just sweet, you know. It's sort of like um, green sugar, <laughs> I guess, if you can imagine that. Hmm. Um, very sweet and, and kind of green tasting. And and the the one thing that people complain sometimes about with stevia is that they say it has a little bit of a lingering yeah, um, that taste to it. And, you know, that's just... Really, that's just a more about our the way we think about that because we're thinking about it like sugar instead of thinking about it like a sweet herb. So, you know, you just kind of have to adjust how you're thinking about it so you don't have that expectation that it's going to taste like sugar with no aftertaste. Thank you. And my next question actually ties into that, which is uh, propagation methods. Um, I, I realize now, looking back, that, yeah, some of the herbs that I've tried to grow uh, from seed, I had a really, um, <laughs> really hard time with some herbs, and uh, you know, depending upon what it was, I would um, you know, just opt to buy the plants at a local nursery. But um, are there any seeds that are very, very easy to germinate? Yes, basil is very easy. So is chives and cilantro. Um, garlic chives is sort of a little bit stronger tasting than regular chives, and they have beautiful white edible flowers. Those are easy to grow from seed. Um, you can grow marjoram, sweet marjoram, very nicely from seed, and it can be used interchangeably in recipes for oregano. Yeah. Oregano is a little bit tougher to grow from seed, but it's not that challenging. The ones that are very hard is rosemary. That one... It, I wouldn't even bother to try to grow it from seed. It has such a low germination rate, and it takes such special conditions that that one is better to just go buy a plant for. But sage is another one that you can grow from seed. The big thing for growing herbs from seed is that they have to stay moist once they're planted. If they dry out, they won't sprout. And they need to be in a warm place while they're germinating, around 65 degrees to 70 degrees um, night and day in order to get those seeds to sprout ideally. So those are the things that give people the most challenge. You know, they go to work and they can't keep the seeds moist and they dry out. Well, then they're just not going to sprout. So if you have challenging circumstances, it, it might be better to go to the nursery and look for an organic plant that you can just bring home and put in a pot or take to your garden as an alternative. Years ago, when I wasn't as strongly opposed to plastic as I am today, I used to cut soda bottles, and um, I would invert them into... They, they used to produce the soda bottles with a black plastic bottom, and I would just cut the bottle and invert it and make kind of like a little, little miniature terrarium, if you will, and um, it would keep the moisture in. But... Um, how do you feel about uh, using, say, cloth that is wet with, say, warm water or something like that? And then uh, I've seen some people put the seeds in there and then, then leave them, um, 
you know, in some in a container or something just to keep the the, the warmth. Well, you can certainly do that, but if you have the seeds, it's it's a fine line really between keeping the seeds moist but not soggy. Because when they do sprout, if they're soggy, the little sproutlets, the little stems will just rot. Mm. You know, so that's kind of the the challenge, I guess I would say, um, to that. But typically, if you can plant them in a pot and and lay a moist piece of piece of cloth, like a bur a piece of burlap or something that's loose wo- weave that you yeah. can get wet and then lay over the top so that there's still air circulation and you don't have the, as high of a risk of things rotting. That will help to keep this, the moisture there. I remember one year I had, uh, oh, God, I had trays of of uh, seedlings and just all my little pods and everything. And uh, I guess some of the pods I give too much water and mold started growing and I had little tiny mushrooms on some of them and it was just a disaster and it's amazing <laughs> you know you spend a lot of money if you buy some of the commercial stuff in the nursery um, if you either just don't have any materials or um, if it's just a matter of timing um, and I was lucky the there's a local organic nursery by me and um, I was able to get what I needed from them and well, I was after searching <laughs> from nursery to nursery to, ner- to nursery to find a family-owned business where they did everything organic because most of the commercial places are not organic. I mean, they have some, but uh, the majority of it is not. Um, right. And, you know, it depends on the area that you live in, you know. It does. But there are there are quite a few organic supplies now, too. And it, just as a suggestion, you can buy core pots. They're made from coconut core. You can buy pots that are made from non-GMO wheat, and those are great for starting your plants in if you don't want to be growing in plastic. I don't really like to grow in plastic whenever I can help that. Mm. Um, you can even grow in think, containers like egg cartons. Yeah, you know? I was just going to say we my We did that when we were that. kids, but yeah. it really works. It's It's great because... It's something that can then be planted straight into the soil and you don't have to disturb the roots as you're transplanting it. And then you lessen the transplant shock, you have better success. So there's a lot of options really now that we can fall back onto that we didn't used to have. Now, speaking of which, when you are going to transplant the seedlings, what advice do you have? Because I know that there are people that... um, have gone straight from the nursery, they'll bring them inside or they'll leave them outside, and then something happens and everything dies. <laughs> well, you have to find out first off if the plant that you, if the herb you have is going to be tolerant of cold or not. Because even in the spring, you know, we get cold spells and warm spells all through the spring season, and you can't necessarily take a plant that has been growing in a warm greenhouse setting and put it straight outside and expect it to be happy. So you may have to harden it off by bringing it indoors in the evening and outdoors during the nice day for several days, you know, to harden it off and toughen it up a little bit so that it can tolerate the cold. But also know that things like basil or rosemary 
um, those are not winter hardy by any means. And so if the temperature is going to go down into the mid to low 30s, that plant will not make it outside. You need to keep it inside until the weather is more stable. That's the first thing. When you are getting ready to transplant the plants, it's very important to try not to manipulate the roots any more than you really have to because, you know, just like us, we don't like to be shaken around all the time. It disorients us and gets us all out of sorts. It's the same if with a plant. If you're manhandling the roots and then putting it in the ground, that plant is going to go through more transplant shock than if you're gentle with it. Oh, I've so seen I, some people just hack at the roots, and I'm just kind of mortified. It's like, what are you doing? Well, there are some plants that are more tolerant of that than others, but by and large, I think it's best to be respectful. You know, just think about them as a living creature that they are and and be respectful. That doesn't mean you have to handle them with kit gloves, but um, you just have to be thinking about how is the nicest, best way to plant it in the ground and, and not manhandle it, right? Now, I have a number of friends and colleagues that do this. They will go to a nursery, they will see plants that are on clearance, and they will go on a mission to resurrect and heal that plant. Which plants? (laughs) It's amazing. Every year I see people do it uh, because if it's on clearance, it's like they just can't resist that bargain. Uh, are there any plants, and I've done it myself, I have to admit, I've done it. Um, sometimes it's been successful, other times, you know, can I say? Uh, <laughs> are there any plants that you feel, yeah, if you see them and, you know, they're on life support, you definitely can resurrect them? And <laughs> are there other plants where it's like, don't even bother? Well, if they are a perennial plant, you're going to have a greater chance of success than if it's an annual, typically, Um, because annual plants that are really sick or um, dilapidated, you know, they are just sort of on this mission to finish out their life cycle and produce seed and and die. Um, So if they're already on that mission, it's going to be hard to turn that around. I would also look and see if the plant looks like it has a lot of insects before you bring it into your home and contaminate all the rest of your plants uh, with those insects. Um, That might be something that's best not done. Um, If the plant has yellow or yellow leaves or blotches on the leaves with a halo margin around them, sometimes that can be a virus. And if that's the case, there's not much you can do about it. And I wouldn't even bother because all you're really going to do is risk contaminating other plants or soil with that plant if it has a viral infection. Yeah, that's so amazing. So those are some things yeah. to look for. But, you know, we have all done that. And <laughs> it's know. always humorous at the farm when we have the crew come back in the spring and there's somebody new, you know, because they're trying to rescue everything that's getting discarded to what we call the chicken trailer. It's what we, you know, we put our discarded plants in there and then they go to the neighbor's chickens for the chickens to pillage through and, and forage through and then that translates to fresh eggs. So um, sometimes they're just best going in the chicken trailer or the compost pile. That's where they'll do their best good. I remember um, I saw at a nursery um, 
uh, not exactly around the corner, but uh, quite a distance away, and they had everything on sale. And I saw this one, I think it was a, a, a tea tree, and it had some disease on the, the leaves, and um, I was debating, could I bring this back to health or not? And I decided exactly what you said before, it just wasn't worth exposing other plants to this one plant. And I said, you know something, when the spring comes, I'll just you know, order one from a catalog. Right. But uh, sometimes it's best to just get something that's that you know is healthy as opposed to trying to resurrect something that, you know, you, you don't know what is going to be the outcome. That's true. And and as you become more expert in your gardening, of course, you, you'll you be able to judge whether or not it's really going to be a viable process, perhaps, or, or whether it's best not done. But um, I think what you're saying is right. And when plants are marked down to bargain-bargain prices, I mean, really, I hate to say it, but the reality is the saying you get what you pay for is often true. And you might be up for the challenge, but maybe that's a challenge that the energy is better spent elsewhere. Yeah. Now, when it comes to transplanting herbs, uh, for example, I have um, a, a, um, a laurel, um, bay leaves, mm-hmm. and it's a fairly old bush. It's about, uh, I would say, 10 years old. Is that something that you can transplant? And, you know, at what point do you just opt not to transplant anything, say if you're moving or you just want to move it to a different part of the garden? Um, do you have any recommendations or guidelines for that sort of thing? Well, something like a bay laurel that's that old, I would say leave it alone if it's in the ground. And better to take some some of the tender tips and try to root those into new plants. Um, as I grow bay laurel actually in a container here because it's not winter hardy for us here. And it comes in during the winter. It goes out into my yard space during the summer months. And it's been in the same pot. It's like yours. Mine's about 12, 15 years old. And it's been in the same pot now for about five years because it's just reached an age where it's best not to be manipulating its roots too much. And it's happy, you know. So if I want to start new bay trees, I just take some cuttings from tender green tips and root them, um, and that that's a better approach, I think. And at what what time of the year would you recommend doing that, and um, how much of a clipping uh, do you take? Well, I think that you'll see the most new growth as the days get longer in the late spring, early summer. That's a really good time because it's not too hot yet. Um, it, that nice tender new growth is what you're after, and you want a piece that's going to be about three to four inches long. And you you're going to have on that stem the joints of the stem are called the nodes, and you want to peel the leaves off of two of those nodes, and then those two nodes will be placed into the soil so that they are in contact with the soil and that's where the new roots are going to come out. You want to keep that little pot that you're rooting um, warm. 
ideally soil temperature between 65 and 70 degrees, and also evenly moist but not soggy. And it will take a while for it to to grow roots. They have to be patient. Thank you. Now, you were generous enough to give us um, permission to repost one of your recipes for herbal vinegar. What is your what is your um, overall recommendation when somebody that has never made uh, an herbal vinegar before, what type of herbs should they start out with? Well, if they are going to be using this vinegar to cook with, I think that something like rosemary or thyme or basil are really good. Um, garlic chives and chives are also quite tasty to make into a an herbal vinegar that then can be used in steamed vegetables over grains like rice or couscous. You know, that's very, very yummy and delicious. If you're making the vinegar for more medicinal properties, then one of my favorite is ginger vinegar because ginger vinegar calms and upsets stomach faster and more effectively than just about anything I know. Hmm. So um kind of depends on what you want to use it for, but the process of making it will be the same no matter, you know, which herbs you're choosing. And it's so easy to make an herbal vinegar. Just going to loosely pack a pint-sized jar with um, coarsely chopped herb and fill it up to the neck of the jar with a vinegar of your choice. I like to use apple cider vinegar, organic apple cider vinegar, but you can use wine vinegar or balsamic, whatever kind you like. I would stay away from white distilled vinegar unless it is certified organic because white distilled vinegar is often distilled with some pretty nasty solvents. So um, white distilled vinegar is a no-go for making your herbal vinegars unless it's organic. So you filter your jar with your vinegar and your herbs. You cap it and let it sit for 10 to 14 days. And then after 10 to 14 days, you can strain the vinegar through a colander or a cloth and reserve the liquid. That's what you're going to use. And the herbal material, uh, plant material, that can go in the compost. And so then you can store that vinegar for one year at room temperature. But it's best really to keep it in the refrigerator and use it at will. You know, it's just a lovely, lovely way. And vinegar mm-hmm. is a great solvent for pulling minerals out of herbs and making them fully absorbable in the body. So it's a great way to supplement your calcium and magnesium and all those wonderful minerals for your health, as well as, you know, the taste of it in your cooking. Thank you so much. And, folks, that recipe will be available um, on the organicview.com. Uh, under the recipes section, and uh, Tammy has so many amazing recipes in the book, and actually the book is just absolutely beautiful. The photographs are really wonderful. Um, the photographer just did a great job, uh, but, I mean, it's it's such a beautiful guide, and this is really a book that every gardener should have in their collection. I mean, there's so much information in here. And then the recipes, you just can't beat that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the other recipe that you were so generous to give us is the simmering herbs and spices recipe. Right. Because Can you explain how you came up with this recipe? <laughs> 
Well, you know, when at Christmas time when you bake an apple pie and it fills the house with that wonderful aroma that just makes you feel good. It's sort of that same idea. And you can make a collection of various spices and herbs. I like to use cinnamon and cloves and mints and lemon peel and those sorts of herbs. But you can mix and match according to your preference. And you mix this up into a dry blend, and then you use a quarter cup of that blend in a little pot, uh, quart-sized simmering um, pot of water. And you just keep adding water so it doesn't cook dry, and it will release all that fragrance into your home. And it just makes it wonderful. And and what I'm going to do from here on out is whenever I see someone or I smell someone using Febreze, I'm going to direct them right to your recipe. Exactly. And I'm going to say this came from the herbal goddess herself, and this is definitely one that every household should definitely have. Uh, Tammy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, your book, Homegrown Herbs, uh, is such a wonderful addition to my collection, and I know uh, everyone that I know that is into herb gardening is definitely going to be quite jealous. So uh, once again, folks, uh, pick up a copy. And Tammy, what is your website so that people can uh, not only follow you and but also keep up with everything that you're doing? Right. I would welcome people to visit Desert Canyon Farm Green Thoughts. All one word, Desert Canyon Farm Green Thoughts dot WordPress dot com and they'll find recipes and gardening tips and blog about what's happening here on the farm. It's just a fun place to go and get information on herbs. Thank you so much. And folks, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon. <laughs>